Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is the powerhouse Melody Hobson. Before we get to today's conversation, I want to tell you about a new Warner Brothers film called Just Mercy, which brings to life one of the most important stories of our time. I love reading a book or seeing a film that changes my perspective on the world we live in. I felt that way the first time I read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and I'm so excited that his story has been made into an extraordinary feature film starring Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, and Brie Larson. The movie is based on Brian's life. He's a true American hero. As a civil rights lawyer, Brian has brought much needed compassion, dignity, and mercy to our criminal justice system. He's liberated more than 100 people from death row, proving their innocence in the process. And to this day, he continues to fight bravely for the disadvantaged and disenfranchised. You cannot watch this film without feeling empathy for the people being portrayed on the screen and a deep gratitude for what Brian has done to make our society more just for all of us. So go see Just Mercy. It's in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get your tickets now. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. And I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. If you don't know who Melody is, you should look her up. After all, Vanity Fair once wrote a story about her called Why the World Loves Melody Hobson. Melody sits at the Venn diagram of finance, business, social justice, politics, and Hollywood. 
Melody is the president and co-CEO of Ariel Investments, which is the largest minority-owned investment firm in the country. She's a nationally recognized voice on financial literacy and investor education and a chairman for the nonprofit organization After School Matters. Today, Melody shares with us the difference between being colorblind and color brave. She did an incredible TED Talk in 2014 on it that's a must-watch. We also talk about how we can learn how to see everyone and respect each other for who we really are. We talk about family values and parenting and what it means for Melody to raise a daughter who is mixed race with her husband, George Lucas. Then we get into the importance of diversifying companies, how it's not only the right thing to do, but it's the smartest move for growing a successful business. And finally, we talk about financial literacy, how one of the most empowering things we can do for ourselves is to become educated on our own finances. First and foremost, what I want to see, people have an equal opportunity. How can we do that on a practical level? Certainly awareness, but awareness is not enough. Action is super important. Okay, let's get to my chat with Melody Hobson. It is an honor to be sitting with you. You, I know, are sort of an icon in many worlds. I know you can't shake your head. It's true. So not true. Business, finance. Like you sit at a really interesting intersection too. Politics, social justice, Hollywood. When you think back, like what's your what's your favorite? I want to talk about financial literacy and I want to talk about social justice. But, and I know you've been at Ariel Investments forever. It's your one job, right? Only one job since Only, I graduated from college. Which is amazing. One job. And is that, do you feel like that it has evolved as you've changed or you just make it work for you or is finance your passion? Finance is my passion or as they say, my jam. (laughs) Finance is my jam. I've always loved the work. I wake up in the morning thinking about how to make people or help them have better lives Mm -hmm. with money. And I've been in situations where I've understood while where when you don't have money, how upsetting and frustrating it is. And so I feel that this work that I do allows people to have better lives. And so it's very, very fulfilling. And I'm able to do it for this long. This is my 28th year, soon to be 29 years. I've had one job since I've graduated from college. The average American has 11 jobs in their lifetime. I've had one. The reason I've been able to do it this long is because I have felt challenged every single day. It's never felt the same, and there are days that are obviously better than others, but even the worst day has been relatively good in my view. And is that because you your investment strategy evolves as the world changes or because you you do you're on so many boards and you're involved with so many different people, like is it that your per- perception and perspective continues to change? So our investment strategy doesn't evolve. Our investment strategy is is founded on some core principles, and we hopefully improve and get better at what we do over time. So we are value investors, mm-hmm. and we're looking for stocks that are out of favor, that for some reason they're misunderstood, ignored, underfollowed, and they're cheap for that reason. And they're companies that we think are worth a dollar, but we can buy them for 60 cents. That's how we think about it. And so there's constantly an opportunity to find value in the world just because of the way the world works. People give up on things. Stocks get oversold. It's, It's, think about it as like, 
if you were going to the last call sale at Neiman's, you know, it's like, <laughs> and you could do that all the time. That's what it's like. That's what we do. It's not like some bargain bin. It's like really great things that are cheap. Right. So that's exciting and fun. And we've owned all sorts of companies. So we own everything from, in our portfolio route, right now, Tiffany's, mm-hmm. the retailer, which has never had a sale in the history of the company. If they get a jewelry design wrong, they melt it down and start over, and the blue box is iconic. Right. So if you your name, if you could own Tiffany's personally, you'd want to. Right. And you'd want to own it forever. That's how we think about things. And then we've had other things in our company, in our portfolio, like Smucker's Jelly. And I always say to people, in 30 years, what is your kid going to be eating or your grandkid? It's true. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They're timeless. And we've owned things in the past like Clorox bleach. And I always say, name a number two competitor to Clorox bleach. Generic. Yeah. So these are the kind of things that we buy, but we buy them when they're out of favor. And so that's always been very exciting because there's value to be had somewhere in the world at any given time. And now our portfolios have expanded from just being U.S.-based to global. Mm -hmm. And that's really exciting that we made that change in 2009 and added in global strategies. But the other part of my life that's really exciting is not only interfacing with the customers that I get to interface with that we work for, but also that I get these seats inside of corporate America. Because remember, I only had one job. But I get to go and be this voyeur Mm -hmm. inside of these businesses and learn from them and hopefully contribute. And so I've been able to do that for almost 15 years at Starbucks, where now I'm vice chair of the board. And I've been been able to do that for 15 years until recently at Estee Lauder. I just went off that board last year. And then now J.P. Morgan, where I've been on the board for about 18 months. And these are global, iconic businesses. Mm -hmm. I also happen to have been the chairman of the board of DreamWorks Animation. And just the lessons, the people, the amount of stimulation you get in those settings is beyond anything I could ever explain. I tell people right now, when I come back from my J.P. Morgan board meetings, I tell our, our team and my husband, I'm getting a Ph.D. in banking. It's like one of the most exciting things. It's super hard. Mm-hmm. It might take me seven hours to read the board book, but it is so exciting to learn all of these nuances that even I, who've been in the investment business for all this time, have not known. On my first day there, my husband said to me, how was your first day at school? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny to say to someone who's 49 years old going to a board meeting. But, you know, I, I just love the work. Yeah. I've really loved the work. And you're clearly a lifelong learner. And so math and finance and, and financial literacy, I know maybe it was in the New York Times that I read about your first job in the stock room. And then you had to, you like started balancing the books and like running the cash wrap, <laughs> which is my fantasy job. Any chance I get to go to like a goop shop and run the cash wrap, best day ever. <laughs> is it that you love numbers or that growing up and knowing that you would be occasionally evicted or lose your power and that you didn't want to be traumatized in that way as an adult? Is that the driving force or is it the perfect marriage between math and financial literacy and helping people have better lives? I think there are three things and you've, you've hit on all of them in different ways. So first, Having the way that I grew up with that uncertainty, that financial uncertainty of being evicted or having our lights turned off or our phone disconnected or our car repossessed created a great deal of insecurity in me financially. And I craved a knowledge of money. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people I do not think it's an accident that I work in the financial services industry because I wanted to know how money worked. My mother said when I was a little kid, I would say to her, I can't wait until I'm big. 
and I wanted to be big so I could take control of mm -hmm. my life because I felt the one thing you don't have as a child is control. Right. No, after you're a child, you have the life that you want. Everyone does. You know, there are people who say there are reasons why they aren't something, but at the end of the day, we all decide every single day what we want every day. Mm -hmm. And that is that is a sobering thought and taking ownership of that was something that I remember vividly when it happened. I remember reading this quote by Judy Collins and she said as women we're raised to have rescue fantasies mm -hmm. and I'm here to tell you no one's coming. And I remember being in my early 20s and seeing that quote and saying no one's coming. I am all I have. So first I had this desire to understand money, and then I realized no one's going to rescue you, which is a big lesson for women because we grow up on fairy tales. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell people, you know, Cinderella got rescued, Snow White got rescued, Shrek rescued Fiona. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like it is, it is in our, the fabric and the DNA of, of girls in our society to get those stories. And that imprinting, leads us to believe someone will come along. Someone might come along, they might do a drive-by. Mm -hmm. and, and so as a result of that, taking ownership really did propel me to really become passionate and embrace the opportunities that I had. And the third thing I would say, I like solving problems. So if you use the storeroom example of me going from checking in the merchandise to working with the bookkeeping to closing out the register at the end of the day, every single, single time I was solving a new problem and I loved it. So for me, like the end of the day balancing the, the cash register, like I would do the Snoopy happy dance when it balanced <laughs> down to the penny. You know, I'd be running around the store, it balances. And something like that for me is just really fun. I know it's crazy, it sounds ridiculous, but it really just gave me a lot of joy that I was solving these problems yeah. and getting new opportunities to do new things. It's exactly the way it happened at Ariel. And it happened inside of Ariel and outside of Ariel from being there and rising up to becoming co-CEO, to having the opportunity to be on the boards that I was on, to rising up on the boards, to being mm -hmm. chair or vice chair, to working on television and explaining money to people. All of these things for me were like new problems that I got to solve and sink my teeth into. And that has been you know, a part of the journey that I've been on. And that doesn't get old. Yeah. Do you feel like my mom also grew up with money scarcity and that imprinted on me in a significant way. And I had the same t experience as a 20 year old where I was like, someone marry me. I just, this is hard. And then <laughs> it took me a while to get married. I know you got married later as well, but did you, do you still grapple with that? You clearly have a, a lot, like you've achieved an incredible amount of success in your own right. You're married to George Lucas. Do you still feel triggered or traumatized by not feeling like you have enough? Or how did you heal that? I haven't. So that's just the honest answer. My husband says what happens to you as a child stays with you. Mm -hmm. Because as a child, you don't have any advanced reasoning skills. And everything that you're taking in, you actually blow up in your own mind. And I think that that is actually true. Because you cannot put it in any context. You don't even really, as a child, understand time very well. Right. And so as a result of that, that imprinting has stayed with me. And it's something that I constantly am thinking about and working through. My, you know, everyone says, you know, what is your recurring nightmare dream? Mine is that I'm homeless, but I'm walking around the door to door to my friends and I have all these bags that say like Gucci and Chanel, but I have nowhere to live. <laughs> and so I've sort of, you know, 
turned it into something in my own mind. It's not going to happen, I know that, but there is something in me that remembers it very vividly. The one thing, the question that I have about that is to make sure that that doesn't overwhelm me in a way that makes me less capable. Mm -hmm. And instead to hang on to that in a way that will fuel some of my energy. And so it fuels my energy in helping other people. Because I, it's not about like, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like that is not okay with me. I think you have debts that you owe society for your own success. Mm-hmm. And I think even just being an American, we have a debt to society. Warren Buffett says, if you're born in America, you've won the birth lottery, mm-hmm. even in our, our poorest places. And I always try to remind, especially young people that I meet with, even those who come from very, very difficult circumstances, you're not a child in Syria. Mm-hmm. You're not a girl that has been taken by Boko Haram. You know, just to put things in perspective for us. Right. And so that debt is something that, from remembering what it was like, it's something that fuels me to do the work that I do. And it gives me a great sense of joy. Yeah. And so let's talk about race and money and financial literacy and sort of the long history of legalized and then systemic racism and what that has done to black communities just in terms of setting people back. Like, it's not there. And I know I know you have an amazing quote, which I'll butcher, just sort of about how you don't begrudge anything what anyone what they have, but it's not always a fair fight. fight. Right. You know, I think part of the issue in our society is that, especially today, we either vilify or glorify money. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually working on, I think I'm going to do a commencement address on this whole concept. I think both sides are dangerous. And so the one thing I can say about the racial overlay is that it is not allowed people of color and to a certain extent, also women, when you look mm-hmm. at the wage gap in our country, to participate in our capitalist society in the same way as white people first, mm-hmm. and then specifically white men. Mm-hmm. And that is not right. So while I am a capitalist through and through, I talk about the fact that I believe capitalism is supposed to work for everyone. And I know firsthand it does not. Right. Now, I don't say that as a victim. I say that just stating a fact. And you can look at things like the wealth effect or lack thereof in communities, the net worths of African Americans and Hispanics versus white Americans at the same income levels, et cetera. They are dramatically different. Most African American families have a negative net worth. And why is that? Well, one reason is that oftentimes in the communities in which we live, even if we're fortunate enough to be a homeowner, the prices of our homes don't escalate in the same way as the prices Mm -hmm. of those in other communities. And for decades, we were redlined. We couldn't even live in certain places. I just watched a documentary on Nat King Cole, and it talked about how he moved into Hancock Park. And all the neighbors, first of all, they loved him as a singer, but they didn't want him living in his community, and he was so much wealthier than all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, these things were real for decades. Mm -hmm. They still exist in a lot of ways. They exist in industries. They exist in opportunities. Opportunity. And I want to call a spade a spade in that situation. I want to be honest about what we're up against, not use it as a reason to, again, claim victimhood, but to point out to people, even someone like me who can break out, I know this is not a fair system. Mm-hmm. And what I do reject in a lot of conversations, people will say to me, well, you did fine. You shouldn't have to be exceptional to have an okay life. Right. Exactly. That should not be how it should work. 
You should be able to be an okay person who, because you can be a regular person and be a white male and have a really good life. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people of color have to find ourselves pushing towards being exceptional, which is a tremendous emotional burden, physical burden, and everything else. Absolutely. And you think about, I mean, you talk a lot about sort of corporate board, the all the lines of business, right, from corporate boards to leadership teams to executive teams to the people who fill the halls and the lack of women, the lack of minorities. And I think in your TED Talk, you you call it how strange it would be to walk into an Exxon executive team meeting and see a room full of black people. But yet we do not think it's strange that it's just all white men. Right. And we clearly, it's just this massive perspective shift too, but I also think that there is so much emotional attachment to like, what do I deserve? Right. Um, and this idea of privilege and people having to own the fact that privilege exists and it doesn't mean you haven't worked hard and that you also don't deserve a great life, but that it isn't fair. Right. So here's what I would say. I think that when you survey people about what they hope and dream for themselves, their goals are actually pretty modest. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not thinking about yachts and airplanes. They're actually thinking about two weeks vacation, their kids getting a good education, having, you know, a house and a car. That's honestly like the data. Right. It's not fantastical. And when you think about that, that's that's what anyone should be able to expect in the wealthiest country in the world. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we should all in this country, in my view, be able to make a living wage. You know, it's been watered down to this idea of a minimum wage. It's not about that because a minimum wage in Los Angeles and San Francisco is different than Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And so the dollar can go a, a very different way depending on what city or state you're in. And so this idea of a living wage is something I think that we should aspire to as a society and not settle for anything less, as well as this idea of the opportunity that exists. When it comes to grappling with privilege, when you think about the people who really have that, it's such a small number. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I say you don't begrudge people. There have been people who've had that's it's it's quintessentially American, from Rockefellers and Carnegie to Bill Gates at Microsoft to Jeff Bezos at Amazon, they've actually done something that is breakthrough, mm-hmm. that has changed the world and changed society. We should not in any way condemn that mm-hmm. because they, that, that those ideas and those breakthroughs help move the needle in some way. And so I think that that's something that we just have to balance mm-hmm. and think about as we think about this whole view of money, which is why I think the extremes are driving the conversation. And I think... Most people really do desire to be somewhere in the middle, which is why in societies around the world, the middle class is so important Mm -hmm. to a community and a society. That's why China has seen so many people move out of poverty into a middle class. That's what made America so unique. Yeah. And we need to remember that. We'll get back to Melody Hobson in just a second. One of my career highlights was interviewing Brian Stevenson for this podcast. Brian is a civil rights lawyer and social justice activist. He's led incredibly important work to confront and overcome racial inequality and has fought tirelessly for much needed criminal justice reform. Brian's life has been turned into a feature film and I couldn't think of a more deserving story to be told on screen. The film, Just Mercy, 
centers around one of Brian's earliest clients, a man named Walter McMillan, who was arrested and falsely convicted of murder in 1987. In the movie, Brian is played by Michael B. Jordan and Walter by Jamie Foxx. There are so many extraordinary components to the film and what Brian has been able to achieve and inspire in a legal system that has too often failed to act with compassion and too often failed to find justice. This is a story that will change the way you think about our justice system. It will make you question whether any of us can really have freedom if all of us don't. And most importantly, it will remind you that we're all human, that we share so much in common, and that even in our darkest hours, there can be room for hope and redemption. Just Mercy is in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get tickets now. And in the meantime, I hope you'll take a look at Brian's work and you can check out my conversation with him on the Goop podcast. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. One of the first good habits you learn is brushing your teeth. I would know because I'm currently trying to instill this routine into my own kids' lives. Self-care doesn't get any more basic than good oral care. And oral care always begins with a really great toothbrush. The Quip electric toothbrush is designed to make good habits simple. It uses sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to make sure you're getting a thorough clean. Here's my favorite part. The Quip floss dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. For some reason, I'm one of those people that has no idea how much floss to use. Another perk is that Quip delivers a fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so you can cross that item off your grocery list for good. Quip even has a toothbrush for kids. It's the same technology, just tweaked for smaller size mouths. So for the holidays this year, my kids may be getting something they weren't quite sure they wanted for Christmas. You can get your own Quip toothbrush today, starting at $25. Head to getquip.com goop to save on gift sets and to get your first refill free with the refill plan. That's a first refill free at getquip.com goop. Head to getquip.com goop. Quip, the good habits company. Back to my chat with Melody Hobson. What are some of the antidotes? I know you say like awareness precedes action, but is it like a universal basic income in this country? Like how do we, is it financial literacy? Can that alone, I mean, I know nothing alone can solve all of our social ills, but what what do you want to see? Is it just starting to, for people to become aware of the lack of diversity and equality? So I want to see two things. Okay. First and foremost, I want to grow up and have my child grow up in a world where, and I've said this, when I was growing up, my mother used to say, Melody, you could be or do anything. Mm -hmm. And what I now tell my six-year-old Everest 
as I want you to believe that's true of anyone and everyone. I want her to grow up in a world where you get the benefit and no doubt. Mm -hmm. And I think right now there's a lot of doubt based upon your race, based upon your religion, based upon a whole lot of things. And I think that that is hampering the success of our society and certainly hampering the human spirit, mm -hmm. which I think is means you can't have a vibrant society. So that's first and foremost what I want to see. People have an equal opportunity. How can we do that on a practical level? Certainly awareness, but awareness is not enough. Mm -hmm. Action is super important. So I've asked people in that TED Talk, observe your environment at school, at work, at home. Who do you invite in your life? What are you sitting with every single day? Mm -hmm. And to the extent that diversity is not there, you can't be as successful as you could be. Mm -hmm. Just if you cared about your own self-interest, you're limiting your own self-interest. You're limiting the education of your children. You're limiting the opportunities they will have to grow and understand this different societies, different cultures, and optimally be able to work with those societies and cultures in a way that benefits them personally. So that's one piece. The other piece that I am that I want to see is I want us to have financial literacy in school in America. Mm -hmm. I want you to be a child and understand the stock market and investing. I want you to understand the power of compound interest. Mm -hmm. Because if you know something that simple, which Warren Buffett calls the eighth wonder of the world, you understand how money can work for you in terms of investment returns and how it can work against you in terms of high interest credit card debt. If you understand that continuum, you, you are already so far ahead in terms of the decisions that you will make. And it will lead our society to make less financial errors. Mm -hmm. One would, could argue that if we had a financially literate society, we would not have had the financial crisis. People would not have taken out mortgages that were interest only that popped up dramatically. Banks would not have been able, willing to do them. Mm -hmm. Our regulators, our Congress would have understood all of these issues better. There was a, there was a ripple effect that was there. I don't think there were bandits, but I do think that there, that lack of understanding created an opportunity for dramatic failure, mm -hmm. which is what we saw during that period. So I want to see diversity be something that is not talked about as a goal. Shonda Rhimes always says, I love this quote, she's like, I hate the idea of even, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to say it represent it as being exactly how she says it. She talks about the idea of diversity being such an odd concept because she said, when you walk around the street in New York or LA or anywhere, you see all these people who are super diverse. And then you go in a room mm -hmm. and people talk about diversity and she's like, out there is normal. Yeah. This isn't. Totally. And that is something that I think is if we could just understand we're in, we're in these, nor these situations that are not normal, that they just jump out at us and say, this is not right. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, that we recognize that everyone could be educated about money. It's not this hard, phantom concept that should incite fear and loathing. It is something that if you get your arms around it, just like many of the things that we have gotten our arms around and that you talk so much about at Goop, health, you know, relationships, all these things, when you get your arms around them, how you could have a better life. Mm-hmm. Totally. And that you you mentioned how, you know, for the sake of our children, like how essential this concept is. I mean, we're living in an and maybe it's not unusual, you would have a much better perspective than I would, but like everything is being disrupted, right? And 
people, the world out there, which is incredibly diverse and full of millennials and who will not stand for this anymore, are going to disrupt businesses that are not sort of appropriately representative and forward thinking. And there's a ton of science, and I know you've cited it, to support how diversity drives business. And absent that, like these companies, and maybe some of them are too big to fail, but it feels like they are setting themselves up for major losses. So what I've said publicly, and it sounds a, pr- a bit dramatic, is that if you are, if you believe you're a 21st century company and you are not diverse, you're committing corporate suicide. Mm-hmm. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And this idea to me that companies are not taking advantage of all of the potential ideas and opportunities that exist within all communities limits their ability to be successful. So it might work for now, but over the long term, it will not work. Mm -hmm. And so this is just common sense. I mean, this is one of these things. Now, I think at some point, enlightened self-interest will kick in. Right now, it's interesting that people view all of this conversation around diversity as like Mm do-gooderism. And, you know, they talk about it being the right thing to do. And I'm just like, it's just smart. Yeah. You know, the book that I talk about in my TED Talk is this book by Scott Page called The Difference. And he's a professor at the University of Michigan who came up with the first mathematical formula for diversity. And he talks about if you're trying to solve a really hard problem, hard, which is what I believe most most of us do in our day-to-day lives, you want a diverse group of people, even those who have diverse intellect. And the example that he gives is the smallpox epidemic when it was ravaging Europe, and they brought the greatest scientific minds together to try to solve for it. And the breakthrough came from a dairy farmer who noticed that the milkmaids were not getting smallpox. And I've said over and over again as a joke, maybe the dairy farmer was Mensa. We don't know. (laughs) But he did notice something they didn't notice, and they were deadlocked having had the same probably intellectual Edu- you know, educational background and experience, these great scientists. And so that's just a simple example of saying if you could bring people into a problem-solving experience that come at things in different ways. I can tell you in investing, we're solving hard problems. When you're a value investor, they say they're, you're catching falling knives, and obviously you want to catch the handle, not the blade. And when we're in the room, you want all those diverse perspectives looking at this company that for some reason has hair on it, Mm -hmm. some reason is out of favor. What do you see that other people don't see? How can you actually take a different position? And the only way that we can do that comfortably is we have to have lots of people look at this problem from different perspectives and say, this is what I see or this is what I think, and avoid group thing. Mm -hmm. When we all like the same idea, we actually get a little panicky. Like, this one's not going to work out if we agree, you know, with unanimity. Yeah. And isn't there a ton of scientific research to suggest to you that in in the context of problem solving, whether it's on a jury or within a business, that diverse diversity sort of 
slows people down because they also, they're not quite sure how everyone else is going to think and they consider problems more carefully. That is a really great point because the one thing I tell people is the one thing about having all those diverse views around a table, it's harder. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. You don't move as quickly in decision making. You have to, you find yourself up against very strong arguments and points of view. And at Ariel, we always say we want to hold our ideas lightly, not dearly. Mm. We want to have an idea and just, you know, pretend you're holding in the palm of your hand like this and so that you can change your mind and you can shift when confronted with new information that might lead you down a different path as opposed to digging in and trying to prove that you're right. But in order to have all of that back and forth and that level of engagement, it takes time mm-hmm. and it takes a certain level of trust. Mm-hmm. And bravery to bring it back to your your TED talk about colorblind versus color brave. People, you know, you have to be willing to st- step into conversations when you feel slightly uncomfortable or you don't know if you're going to offend someone, right? And our tendency to say, which I've always found so strange, but I understand it, but the whole colorblind, like, I don't see race to the extent that if you're talking about a group of people and one woman happens to be black, you'll say, she's wearing a purple shirt instead of saying she's black. But that how, how problematic that's become that we we can't just acknowledge that we're different, right? It's so interesting because one, I feel strongly about this idea of colorblind, Mm -hmm. that, that I've met so many people over the years that told me that they were colorblind, which is why I ultimately did the TED Talk. And I would finally say to them, but everyone around you looks just like you. So actually, let's try something different. Mm -hmm. Let's actually not be colorblind. Let's actually see it. And then in so doing, you will see what is absent around you. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said, instead of being colorblind, being color brave. I also was in France earlier this week in Paris, and what was fascinating to me is, you know, there's a lot of political upheaval over the fact that they want certain ra- words taken out of their lexicon. And some of those words specifically are race and identity, eth- mm-hmm. I'm sorry, race and ethnicity. And it's interesting to me because I am defined by, you know, we are comfortable saying someone's a boy or a girl. And I know in our, our gender-fluid world, we also have variations on that now that I'm very comfortable with, and I think the world is being pushed in their perspective, and I think that's exactly right and as it should be. Mm-hmm. But even in the gender fluidity of our conversation about gender, if it's they, it, whatever it might be, as, as that has evolved, we are still comfortable with those labels mm-hmm. or the new definition of those labels. But, but for some reason, and I, I just don't understand this, suddenly being able to say that you're black or Hispanic or Asian or whatever it might be seems controversial. Mm-hmm. That just makes no sense to me because I am a black woman. Right. That is what I am. And my identity is tied to that in every way. I think that is what you see when you see me. Mm-hmm. So why must we reject what I believe I am, what I embrace about myself, what I think you see when you see me? Why must we water this down into something that makes everyone feel by not having these labels, you can the person can potentially be more comfortable mm-hmm. and take away that which I think, especially in America, given the melting pot that we are, that makes us great. Yeah, no, and and it's funny too because being part of a majority culture, I don't identify. I would never say, "Oh, I'm like in my Twitter bio, I'm a white woman," right? It's so I'm like a, I'm so majority, and I'm so, but I might identify myself as a mother, 
But it's interesting to even think about that in the context of like how we do identify ourselves. And well, it comes from society, though. Yeah. Society put the labels, puts labels on us clearly. Right. And the thing is, the black people I know, and certainly me, I'm unapologetic about who I am. Yeah. That's what I've strived to be. I'm comfortable with being called a black woman. I'm totally good with that. And I'm not trying to be something else. Right. I'm not trying to erase this part of me that is that is quintessential to who I am. And I want that to be very much of how my daughter thinks about herself. She's a mixed-race child, but I tell her she's black. And I want her to really understand because our society will see her that way. Right. I it's I wonder how like my children I mean they will identify obviously as white too but like as they grew up in a, in as you mentioned this gender fluidity too like how it will evolve like I just don't know how we'll all describe ourselves. The one thing that I would hope for with young children today, first of all, is we've talked about race with my child since she was two years old. My daughter speaks fluent Mandarin and she calls my husband Baba. And he one day he said to her, Baba is white and Mama is black. Everest is black and white. And because she speaks Chinese, she looked at me and she said, and Mandarin. <laughs> so she thought she was part Chinese, which was very, very funny and very great. But the interesting thing, and I love that. Like, I love that, mm-hmm. that she she has embraced the Chinese culture because she has had Chinese as a part of her life from birth. And she sees herself as Chinese, too. That's awesome to me. It's really (laughs) awesome. But the one thing I do want, I'm hoping that kids understand, especially white kids in America, is what their skin, what privilege that skin gives them. Mm -hmm. And if you can understand that, I think it makes you much more empathetic and understanding of the challenges that other people face. Yeah. And those challenges exist. They have nothing to do with class. They do with race. I can tell you I'm, I've, I've had the opportunity to do things that I could never have imagined, but I've still been in situations where my race is first a barrier or a challenge that I have to overcome with someone. And I can see the light bulb go on over their head when they're talking to me and they're all of a sudden like, she's smart. Mm. I can see their face change. I've been in too many rooms where someone didn't make eye contact with me. Too many times. And so just having a white child understand, mm-hmm. that is that is an amazing, great thing. That maybe Everest will be in a situation that will, that will happen. And the important thing about that when it does happen, I don't want her to feel less as a person. Right. And so you have to teach her that this is going to happen. This is just the way the world is. Nothing to do with you. You're awesome. Yeah. But the rest of the world won't understand that. There's a study, and it's in Jennifer Eberhardt's book, Biased, where she talks about school kids and going to this colorblind idea where they took, I think it was a a fairly diverse classroom, divided it in half, showed one class a video that essentially was like, we're all the same, and it's sort of pushing this colorblind agenda, and the other was about how we should respect and understand our differences. And then they showed the kids... I think it was a a white kid intentionally tripping a black kid during a soccer game, sort of in a malevolent way, perceptively malevolent. And the kids who were coached to be colorblind didn't see it as racist, and they didn't think it was a problem. And the kids who were coached to see difference did. It's like a dramatic example of like teaching our children to be good social justice stewards and to be looking out for each other 
and protecting each other. I mean, it's like it was it such an I think powerful example of like the way that we teach them and how it has profound implications. So here's the thing. We have to watch, walk a fine line that I just want to make clear from my perspective. This doesn't mean I'm right. It's just my view yeah. of the world. I want those differences to be understood and embraced. And at the same time, I want them to not matter in how you consider a person. Totally. So that's the, that's the duality of the conversation. Mm-hmm. That because you are doesn't mean that you are less. Right. You are the same. But you have, you know, you have a different religion or you have a different background, whatever it might be, that that enriches this conversation as opposed to create a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the danger comes in pointing out the differences. And then if that leads to hierarchical differences, mm-hmm. perceived or, you know, subconsciously or consciously, that's where we get into a lot of danger. And that's why I use the quote with my daughter you know, I want you to believe that you can be or do anything, but I want you to believe it's true of anyone or everyone. Mm -hmm. And so that you don't think of a doorman differently than you think of someone who's, you know, at the top of a corporation. That is a really important lesson. How many generations, I mean, Nat King Cole and Hancock Park is not that long ago, right? How many generations do you think it's going to take to until there is representation and it wouldn't be strange to have a black female president or a female president or a Jewish president like how how long do you think that until we reach a place where we're not having these conversations we're going to have these conversations for a long time the data on catching up is pretty bleak yeah i mean even if you looked at the wage gap between men and women. I mean, it's like Hundreds over a hundred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is is so ridiculous how long it'll take before the gap does not exist. In terms of the possibilities of, for example, a woman president or a black woman or a Jewish president or, or I, you know, just all the possibilities that exist. Once, if you look at the Democratic candidates, we see all of that diversity. They're the most diversity we've ever seen yeah. in the history of the country in terms of running for president. I'm completely heartened by the fact that Barack Obama was president of this country. And I would not have expected that in my lifetime. So I think that's the great thing about America is anything is possible. That within, you know, just a stone's throw of people in a field picking cotton, Mm -hmm. Barack Obama was president of the United States. Within a stone's throw of the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, you have Barack Obama. And so in the scheme of things, when you think about just eternity. Mm -hmm. It's not that long. The problem is I'm impatient and Mm -hmm. I want it to happen now, as I'm sure a lot of other people do. And I don't want the barriers to entry to be, again, predictive based upon what you look like. Mm -hmm. It should be based upon what your ideas are. Mm -hmm. And hopefully our country will realize that's in their best interest. We saw that with Barack Obama. He was outstanding as a leader. He was an elegant and thoughtful person. He represented our country extraordinarily well. I was proud Mm. to have him as our president every day. And wistful about the time that he was there, every speech he gave, I wished I could be that good. And that's something that is inspiring. That's all I could think about is all the little black kids and brown kids in America who knew a black president, Mm -hmm. who that did not seem foreign to them, to be someone like my daughter, six years old. I remember we were going to a hotel and he was there. My daughter was four years old at the time. And she looked at me and she's like, I know who that is. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, who is it? She's like, Barack Obama. 
She was four. And I was like, how, you know, she, and so then we went to say hi to him and she didn't have her shoes on. She said, I need my shoes. I need my shoes. <laughs> she wanted to be proper to meet the president of the United States. He had just I left office. <laughs> I was so proud of her. She's like, I need my shoes. It was so great. But she literally, she whispered to me, I know who that is. So it's so exciting, you know, that a child that young could perceive the significance mm -hmm. of him. I was just blown away by that. And I, that's when I really, really felt symbols matter. Mm -hmm. They matter. They change your perspective of all that is possible. And if you can't see symbols, if you can't see what you can't be, you can't be it. Yeah. How do you feel about our backslide? Do you feel like incredibly disheartened or is that, are you not surprised or do you feel like it's actually been a helpful mirror for some people to see how far we still have to go? Because I think a lot of people were like, oh, we did it. We're good. Well, I never felt that way. Right. So I never felt we were in a post-racial society or anything <laughs> like that. Those words, I was like, right. What I would say, there's nothing about this that's helpful. Yeah. So zero. You know, I would say that I'm going to quote Barack Obama here. He said, history doesn't move in a straight line. It zigzags. Sometimes it goes backwards. Sometimes it goes forward. But you have to believe in the potential of America. And that's what I wake up every day in the world mm -hmm. and humanity. It's not about America. I, I believe in humanity. Mm -hmm. I really do. I am one of those people, glass half full. I am not a cynic. Mm -hmm. I believe in the possibilities of the human spirit, and I think people want to do the right thing. I am very hopeful about that. Yeah. I am very sad when that is not true, very. But I was raised to know to expect that as well, as yeah. most black kids are. I feel like it's, and this is coming, I live in Los Angeles, obviously, but it feels like it's it's created a tsunami of just, I think, at least appetite for progress and and... I hope it comes. I mean, I guess we'll see. Not that long. I think it's hard to hold back progress. I yeah. really do. I think even when there are there are setbacks, I think progress comes. And again, I I I bet on the American people. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm I'm staking my claim that, you know, at every stage when the decision tree came about right and wrong, when now that doesn't mean it was easy, that doesn't mean people didn't fight it. But we got over the hump mm -hmm. at every stage. If you look at you know the end of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, if you look at the Civil Rights Act, if I mean at every stage, again, not smoothly, mm -hmm. not without tremendous sacrifice and effort, tremendous, including lives lost, etc. Mm -hmm. But somehow we soldiered through and soldiered on and got to a better place. And we still have such a mountain to climb, mm -hmm. such a mountain. I think we're so far away from the top. And the top, I may not see it. My daughter may not see it. But I think the top will come. And we go back to quoting King. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen the mountaintop. He, that's what he said in the I Have a Dream speech that was so powerful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I believe in that mountaintop. I think that we'll get there. Too. I do, too. And I believe in American people, but I, and I specifically believe in women. And I feel like it's that's also happening, and it's really sad when you think about how many it's more CEOs named both John and David than, than CEOs who are women and the Fortune 500 companies. Like we have so far to go. Yeah. Are you still like one of two, or was that when you were chair? That was when I was chair. Yeah, one of, of I was one of two 
chairs of public companies that were black women. Yeah. Only 2.7% of public company board seats are held by black women in the United States. 2.7%. And while I think I'm smart, I don't think I'm the smartest 2.7% of black women in America. Right. I think there are more of us that are up for the job. I know. And it's obviously to like a, a pipeline problem. And I know you talk about this in the TED Talk, but there are things that we can all do. Like anyone with any hiring power or any mentoring power or any influence, even people who just buy things. It's like buy them from companies that have shown some sort of devotion to equality, right? Or female-led. What I would say is use your power for good. Yeah. That's how I think about it. Whatever power you have, use it for good. And that doesn't mean power in a traditional way, like I'm the boss. You have a voice, Mm -hmm. you know, at every level of an organization. And the one thing I think that people talk about when it comes to diversity and inclusion, they always talk about edicts from on high, when it's actually about the rank and file Mm -hmm. affecting change. And that could be in a meeting, that could be in, you know, as I said, a hiring process, that could be a PTA meeting, whatever it might be. It's the voices of the many that ultimately affects the most change. If we look at the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks was just a person Mm -hmm. who decided she wasn't going to move to the back of the bus. She didn't have a tremendous amount of power, influence, or money. She just made a decision not to conform and that she was not going to do that anymore. No, highly structured as they selected her and all sorts of things, but she had the courage to do it. And it didn't come with some kind of big title, big education, big money. It was just a person taking a stand. Mm -hmm. And I think we, I'm often in my mind thinking of her because like anyone, I can feel fear too. Courage is not an absence of fear. It's overcoming it Mm. and asking yourself, am I going to speak up at this moment? Am I going to stand out for something that I believe in? And you don't have to do it in a crazy militant way. I don't have to have to fit my fist up in the air, antagonize people and de facto call them a racist. But I can ask them questions. Why is it this way? Why Mm. is it that no one breaks through? Why is it that I don't see people who look like me? What do you think about this? Do you notice that or is it just me? Mm-hmm. It could be done in a way that can be very, very effective and not aggressive and still get to the same point. And there are times you have to be aggressive too. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Melody Hobson. For more on Melody's work, visit arielinvestments.com. That's A-R-I-E-L. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. What's your morning routine? What do you eat, drink, skincare? How do you spend your first couple of hours? Well, Jennifer, my weekday morning routine is always pretty much exactly the same. I get up at 6.30 and I do oil pulling, coconut oil, which was my New Year's resolution last year. So I've pretty much stuck to it. And I try to do a little bit of deep breathing in the morning and then I brush my teeth. I have a huge, huge glass of water, and then I have coffee. And I don't really have any skincare in the morning because after I drop my kids at school, I go straight to the gym, and after the gym, I always shower, and I do my skincare routine in the shower, which is the Gtox foaming cleanser for my skin. And then after the shower, I either use our Goop organic face oil, which I love, or Vintner's Daughter, or this beautiful British brand, Ela. They make a gorgeous face oil too. And I usually keep it pretty simple throughout the day. I'm, I kind of have some 
lip moisturizer, and, and that's, that's pretty much it for the first couple of hours. Thank you, JP. If you have your own question you want JP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.